Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 60 for the second quarter of January 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the Face on Mars, Part 2. Last episode focused on the history of imaging the face and some of the claims associated with it. This episode will get more into the claims related to it, but not necessarily specifically about it, various other faces people see on the planet, and some more of the fringe conspiracy theories about government cover-ups and aliens and, well, you'll listen to it in about 20 minutes, if you keep listening. To start out with, I want to explicitly explain why this is simply an example of pareidolia. Pareidolia being the phenomenon that was named at least 150 years ago where people see familiar features in what is general randomness. The reason why I'm getting to this first is because it's not really something that I directly addressed in part one, but it's really the straightforward answer to the Sidonia Mensa face on Mars. So let's get it out of the way. As I said, that's what this is. The very first image of the site Viking Photo 035A72 showed what looked like a face on a roughly 50-pixel-tall feature that is now officially known as Sidonia Mensa, a.k.a. a Mesa. Follow-up images at incredibly, incredibly high resolution. And by incredibly high, I mean instead of about 250 meters per pixel, we're talking about closer to 0.25 meters per pixel. Around a thousand times better. They show it as nothing that really is recognizable as a face. If we had images like this originally, people would never have thought that this looked like a face. But, because of the original, people now try very, very hard to see a face on an eroded hill. Why do I say that? Because even on Coast to Coast AM, the late-night paranormal radio show begun by Art Bell over 20 years ago, people have different interpretations and see different features there, of the same feature. Richard Hoagland sees half of a human head and half of a lion's head. At least that's what he's been saying for about the last decade, before it was just a human head. But he says that some people who look at it see only a lion's head, or some people just see a generic cat head. George Haas and William Saunders, who run the Sedonia Institute, see a highly ornamental and complicated nose and think it looks Mesoamerican. And William just happens to be a Mesoamerican art scholar. Others see Jesus. It's exemplified in this discussion from 2009, though it's unfortunate that they don't realize it. Beyond the face on Mars, did these structures pop right out to you too, or did you really have to look at them? It sort of depends. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Um, some of them I could see. Uh, I was sure there was evidence that there was a, a, an image, and it would, you know, I would look for days trying to pinpoint it, and then suddenly it would just jump out. And um, you'd, you'd wonder how you missed it all along. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's tricky because they seem to be intentionally intentionally hidden so they're they're made to look like uh, natural landforms but when they're really not i'm honestly not sure that you could have a better description of pareidolia related to geologic structures another reason that some people such as nick redfern claim that it's real is that the face that we see 
is facing up towards us into space. You know, the face points upwards. In other words, if it's a carved structure, which I believe it is and Mac did, it has to be seen from above. You know, this is sort of, this then provokes comments and, you know, observations with respect to space flight or at least aviation. You know, you don't create something to be seen from above if there's nothing going on above you. Apparently, it didn't occur to him that the reason that this feature is seen pointed up and almost nothing is seen from the side in people's pareidolia of Mars is that we predominantly have satellite imagery looking down on the planet. We only have some vistas from the ground in a few isolated locations. That's not to say that people don't see pareidolia in rover and lander images of Mars. In fact, that'll be the subject of a future episode. But this case... The claim that the face is real because we see it facing up towards space is just kind of crazy. As we got better images over the last 15 years, some people who thought that it was artificial did realize that it's just a natural rock formation, or at least that that's the most likely explanation. Many still believe it's artificial, and NASA is hiding it in some way. We'll get to that later on. On the other extreme, though, there are some people who claim that the Viking images were of the artificial structure and that it really was an artificial structure. But the reason that we don't see it as an artificial structure now with better images is that either the failed Mars mission in 1992 of Mars Observer actually didn't fail, but it was a bomb and we bombed the face, or that the secret space program people bombed it themselves. When you get to that point, it's really hard to argue with someone. But... I told you in this episode that we'd be getting into a little bit more of the conspiracy angle of this whole thing. To switch gears, I briefly mentioned Mark Carlotto last time, because I didn't quite expect this material to be so expansive and I thought that everything would fit into one episode. I mentioned Carlotto in the context of having created a 3D model of the Sidonia Mensa from Viking images, but that if Richard Hoagland was correct in that half of the place was hugely reflective, then Carlotto's models were going to be very, very wrong. But Richard didn't think they're wrong, but he thought that half of it was very reflective. So there was a little bit of dissonance there that he didn't pick out. Carlotto deserves much, much more of a discussion than just that, so he's first up in this episode after that whole part about this actually being pareidolia. Conveniently, for a guy who did most of this stuff in the 1980s and 90s, Carlotto still has a website, and he has archived his website from the 1990s online, so you can peruse it at your leisure. He's also no dummy. Mark has published a fair... Not that I'm saying that Richard Hoagland is a dummy. But anyway, Mark has published a fair amount of image analysis over the last three decades or so, not all of it related to Mars. And to his credit, he generally qualifies his statements as one should by saying that what he's arguing is his preferred interpretation as opposed to others who say that, oh, well, this is fact and it can't possibly be anything else. Carlotto couches his claims. Carlotto has done much more than I can address just in this podcast episode. But there's one thing in particular that I can talk about, and that's his initial analysis of the face imagery back in the late 80s and early 90s. In doing this, I'm going through a page on his website, which I've conveniently linked to in the show notes so that you can follow along at home if you want, and if you can. If you're driving in your car, you should not be looking at this well on your iPad while you're driving. The first thing that Carlotto did was to remove the, quote, salt and pepper, unquote, noise from the original Viking image that we talked about last time. He did this with a 3x3 pixel Laplacian filter, 
which is basically the median filter that I discussed back in episode 48. In other words, he effectively made up information that was missing in all cases of noise. Now, as I stated in episode 48, that's not bad, it's not evil or anything, it's not deceptive, but it means that the data that you put there is a guess based on the surrounding real information. In fact, he says that his threshold for noise removal was chosen so that his process did not, quote, significantly distort the fine-scale detail in the image, end quote. In other words, it did distort some of the detail because he made up information. So it did alter it in those cases. Again, that's not necessarily deceptive as long as you are aware that that's what you're doing. What he then did was both locally and over the entire image, he stretched the contrast to make darks darker and lights lighter in order to make it more visually obvious to the human eye. The next thing that Carlotto does is to put this image effectively through a low-pass filter, meaning that big features are going to pop out, but smaller features are going to disappear. He does this to point out that there appears to be stripes going horizontally across the image in the original 035A72 Viking image, but not in the 070A13 Viking image. He says that since these are not aligned with the actual camera system, they can't be an artifact, which in fact is wrong. In fact, he specifically says, quote, The scan lines cannot be caused by either the sensor or subsequent digital processing. That's not true. There are many things that could cause those lines, even if it's not necessarily aligned with the image edges. And unfortunately for him, we have much, much better images of the Mesa now, and his long-scale wavelength lines are not present. He next points out several thin lines. These actually are present in the unprocessed image, and they're visible in the much higher resolution versions we have today. They're cracks and fissures. They're nothing artificial, and he doesn't necessarily claim that they are, he just points them out. The next part of his page on image analysis of the face talks about, quote, fine structure in the mouth area, end quote, where he talks about seeing teeth. If you look at his image, the features are clearly originally only one pixel in size that look bigger because he's increased the image size. Again, back to episode 47 and 48, you can increase the size of your image, but you're making up the information by increasing the size. You cannot get more information than was already there. Moving on, he says that because these one-pixel-sized features appear in both images, that they're real. He dismisses the claim that they're image noise. But, of course, again, with the benefit of much better images today, his teeth are missing. The second main contribution to this whole thing is Carlotto's 3D modeling of the face. To do this, you assume that the feature is going to reflect light in a certain way. That way, if a part is fainter than another, then it's due to the angle of that feature relative to you and relative to the light source. If it's brighter, then it's at a different angle. You can use this to do what he did. But as I just implied, this assumes a certain reflectivity. It's generally a good assumption for small local features, and his 3D version, while it looks crude and cartoony compared to what we have today, it does show the very basic idea. He got the forehead area a little too high, but otherwise it's about right. So why the big deal? It's because the original image of the Mesa had it being 50 pixels in length. That means that 
anything Carlotto does is going to show the 3D face only being 50 pixels in length. And to reduce the uncertainty, you really should bin the data as I discussed in episode 48. If he does a basic 2x2 two two pixel binning, we're talking about a feature that's only going to be about 16 pixels by 25 pixels. It's really, really, really hard to say that that's going to be an artificial structure or a natural structure when you're dealing with so little information. At this incredibly low resolution, very few features can really be seen. What looks like an eye, a nose, a mouth, it's going to be emphasized even more by his assumptions. So it's pareidolia again, but effectively enhancing it so even more people see the feature than before. It's like if I take a picture of grass and I make it black and white, and then I shade in, connect a few lines together, and draw a puppy dog, you're going to see a puppy in the grass, regardless of whether it's there or not, because I drew it in there. It's somewhat similar with Carlotto's 3D model. Again, though, Carlotto is really among the least dishonest or self-deceived people out there when it comes to the face on Mars lore. He's couched his stuff generally by emphasizing that it's his interpretation, though he does believe it's real. It's people like Hoagland, George Haas, William Saunders, and a few other people that I'll talk about in this episode who take Carlotto's work and say that it means what they think it means, but with much more certainty. The next topic here that I want to briefly touch upon is other faces. Again, more evidence that this stuff is pareidolia because a lot of people see faces on Mars as opposed to other things. That's not to say people don't see other things. Richard Hoagland sees, for example, apartment complexes. Uh, other people see giant parrots or the Roadrunner bird, but that's other episodes. Aside from that, though, there are people who claim that they do see other faces in other places on Mars. There are entire websites devoted to it. In fact, I just wasted 15 minutes perusing them, looking at all the examples of pareidolia that people have found. They, of course, don't say it's pareidolia. They say it's ancient artifacts or ancient landforms or geoglyphs, much like the Nazca Lines in Peru. Rather than really get into this in detail, or even actually link to their sites, you can do a Google search or whatever search engine you want for your own information if you want to, I bring it up here more for completeness in the whole Face on Mars discussion. Besides the face at Sidonia, innumerable people have scoured the hundreds of thousands of images that we have on Mars and found their own examples of other faces. Many of them look like a face only to those who discover it. As an example, there's one called the Crown Face, or Little King Face, in an image that was taken about a decade ago by the Mars Odyssey camera, or Mock. I posted the image, without saying where this face is on the image, to both my Facebook page for the podcast, as well as to my at pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O, Twitter account. I asked people to find it, and then I said I'd give a shout-out to whoever did it first. Although I got over a dozen responses, none of them were the official face in that image. And FYI, to those who were frustrated by this, I have posted the answer to the show notes for this episode. What this shows is that you can find something familiar in pretty much anything. I got a lot of creative responses to that little puzzler. And although many others may not see it, the people who do read into it read into it by an incredible amount. Michael Luckman, interviewed in 2002 about this face, talked about how half of it looked human and half of it looked ape-like. 
Of course, to him and Richard Hoagland, because it wasn't a perfect human face, but a mix of two species to their eyes, it made the feature much more likely to be real. Because we may see human faces, that's just pareidolia. But half-human and half-monkey faces? Well, that's just too crazy to attribute to pareidolia, according to them. As we travel more to the conspiracy side of the issue, there are a large number of different ideas. Almost all of them have to do with aliens. Well, actually, all of them have to do with aliens, or at least all of the ones that I've seen. I mean, it makes sense. If the basic premise is that the face, and other faces, are artificial, or carved or created by people other than our current selves, and my careful wording here is going to be explained momentarily, then, of course, the implications of the face being real have to do with life off of Earth. Now, before I go further, let me explain the careful wording. I didn't say aliens, nor even ETs, because of the numerous different ideas espoused by people in the field. I'm not going to do a detailed analysis of each, because, as Brian Dunning of Skeptoid likes to say, and I'm paraphrasing here, you don't have to analyze a phenomenon if the phenomenon doesn't exist in the first place. I think I've done a reasonably good job at this point of showing why the face is just an example of pareidolia. So I mention these alien conspiracy ideas more for general interest, as well as completeness when discussing the face on Mars. For one of the more interesting ideas, we turn again to Richard C. Hoagland. One of his, what he likes to call, models, is that the Martians are actually us. We are the Martians. It was us, about 300 to 500,000 years ago, who carved the face. And then, when Mars became uninhabitable, we came here. In fact, Richard has claimed that the Nazis knew all about this, that we are the Martians, and all they wanted to do was go back home, return to Mars. I think if they'd just told that to the rest of us, then the rest of the world would have helped them, but that's a future episode. So that's why I said life off of Earth rather than aliens or ETs. That's just one of the ideas out there. Another idea is, of course, Zachariah Sitchins, whom I discussed in episode 23, the fake story of Planet X, Part 1. Sitchin claimed that Mars was effectively a way station for the Anunnaki aliens who came to Earth to create and enslave humanity to mine gold for them. I'm not sure if Sitchin really ties the face to the Anunnaki, but the Neo-Sitchinites definitely do. A third idea is that the face was built by an alien race that's long gone, but it was left there as a signpost of a dying civilization so that others would know that they existed, kind of like a monument or a time capsule. A related fourth idea is that the face was built by a long-gone alien race, much like the monuments in the 2001 movie and book, and the face was built to inform a much more advanced alien civilization that we, us lowly humans, have reached the space travel stage of technological evolution. Those are somewhat interesting ideas. I personally have nothing against them and think they'd make interesting, not necessarily great, but interesting sci-fi stories. But that's about it. So with those alien implications, we have alleged reasons of why the government would cover it up, or why the government is slowly, secretly releasing the information for those in the know to find. As an aside, when investigating this stuff, it's almost like the moon hoax claims, where there are almost an infinite number of permutations that are all self-contradictory. The only thing that ties them together is the root idea 
that Sidonia Mensa is an artificial structure. One person, Michael Luckman, claimed that the reason that NASA is slowly releasing new images that prove the phase is artificial to those who know what to look for is that NASA simply wants more money, and that when he was interviewed back in 2002, it was the Bush administration who was slowly trying to draw our attention away from the whole terrorist threat thing in September 11, 2001 with al-Qaeda. Obviously, uh, when they dumped 65,000 pictures out, they knew that they'd be poured over by people like you and me and, 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 and so many other uh, scientists, astronomers and whatnot. Uh, and uh, so they, they allowed them out. Uh, I think that that says quite a lot right there. Uh, there is also a, a, a very much, a, I would say, a political factor. Well, I know, but that's, that's a little like, you know, if, you, if you're an attorney, mm-hmm. you're in the middle of a lawsuit and you request a document. And they bring in a warehouse, you know, and they bring in a warehouse of documents, and you've got to go through that warehouse to maybe find the document you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, they, they can drown you in information. And yeah, well, they know it would take, you know, a certain amount of time, but that people would be persistent, and that eventually would uh, it would come out. I, I also think that the uh, Bush administration probably, because for fairly obvious reasons, the fact that that people that you know that people are so worried now about the uh, terrorist problem. Uh, that this is a way of, uh, of, you know, taking attention away from, from that and, uh, you know, putting attention off onto some great adventure. Uh, to, go to, to go to Mars, yes. Yeah. Granted, that was set in February of 2002, and if that were the diabolical thinking, it obviously failed because NASA's funding is at an all-time low relative to the federal budget. On the opposite side, you have people like Nick Redfern and Richard Hoagland, who claim that the reason that NASA is hiding or obfuscating the face is because of the Brookings report that was commissioned a half a century ago by NASA that suggested people would be scared if E.T. life were found out to be real. That's a frequent refrain of Richard's and one that I'll be addressing in yet another future episode. But basically, they're doing this for the protection of government and society as a whole. So goes the claim. But every time a new mission is launched, especially by a different country, Richard thinks that we're one step closer to disclosure, and that this will be the one that does it, despite his insistence that NASA will never disclose because of the Brookings report. John Brandenburg, who will also be the subject of a future podcast episode about a Mars nuclear war, put it this way. Why do you think government didn't want us to know? You would would think that we would be jumping up and down. uh, I wrote a screenplay for a movie talking about this and a character is explaining to kind of a Vince DiPietro character he says well the Mars bone is connected to the UFO bone and the UFO bone is connected to the head bone of this government (laughs) so if the Mars bone goes the UFO bone goes and the head of this government may fall off he says (laughs) well that's the old Brookings right remember (laughs) that old Brookings study right yep Along those lines, and something that I've saved for last, is another claim by Nick Redfern that is somewhat similar to Richard Hoagland's Martian Nazi idea. Nick thinks that there is ancient knowledge from a much more intelligent race of humans from Earth that has been passed down over the years to a select few. And those people who have this knowledge, well, some of them are good guys, and they want to leak it out to the general public. So... They whispered it into the ears of people in Hollywood and other entertainment industries to help get it out. 
In fact, this was manifest in the 1950s when a simple comic book artist had a whole issue about a giant ancient face being on Mars and discovered by astronauts. Since that was before the Space Age, or at least the one that's publicly known, obviously the artist was tipped off by these people in the know. Everyone who did some sort of leak like this had ties to, or had family members with ties to, or had friends who had ties to the military or the CIA. But after the Brookings report came out, all of these leaks mysteriously stopped. When looking into this idea, the first thing to dismiss quickly is the claim that everyone who was allegedly involved in leaks of this ancient knowledge had ties to, or had family members with ties to, or had friends who had family with members with ties to, or had friends with former college roommates, siblings with pets that had ties to the military or the CIA. That's everyone, especially only 10 to 20 years after World War II. I mean, I have a friend who I went to grad school with whose husband is in the military, Therefore, I, I guess, have ties to the military or CIA because I have a friend whose husband is in the military. It's just kind of... To point this out is to immediately poison the well, even though it's not really poisoning, but it's to seed the well, I suppose, with the twinge of conspiracy when, in fact, it's just the status quo for pretty much everybody on the planet. Moving on. The reason that I saved this for last is that, much like I saved the Something on the Sun Will Do Something Bad on December 21st, 2012 episode for last, there's no definitive answer, and it's an interesting point, an interesting claim. It is true that artist Jack Kirby, in issue number two, The Race for the Moon, published by Harvey Comics in 1958, had a plot line that incorporated astronauts exploring Mars coming across a giant human face. A person falling in sees the destruction of a utopia-like Martian civilization of giant people. You can view the comic for yourself online for free, and I'll have a link in the show notes. The idea is that it's like a time capsule for this ancient, godlike civilization. Now, of course, it's vertical, and it's very well-preserved, and obviously a face in the comics as opposed to looking nothing like Sidonia Mensa but that's what a skeptic would say, I'm sure. People who are more of the conspiracy mindset, and really, if you do an internet search on this stuff, that's all you find, of course they have a different take. A blogger wrote in 2008, quote, Does this mean the CIA knows we are about to be visited by 2,000 feet tall alien gods? End quote. Someone on the conspiracy forums Above Top Secret wrote with respect to the face being vertical versus horizontal, quote, I believe this standing fallen argument is answered by the 10% real info, 90% disinfo formula used by Hollywood and print media, as well as education system. I am sure the puppet masters told them what to write. The writer took it off as a vertical face, as well as it being more dramatic to have the people climbing a sheer wall. End quote. Another, perhaps more pragmatic person on the above top secret forums wrote, quote, Interesting, but stuff happens. There was a novel published several years before the Titanic sunk about a huge new passenger ship that was struck by ice and sank in the North Atlantic. Its name was the Titania. During World War II, well before Hiroshima, a science fiction author published a short story about another planet 
where one nation had developed a powerful super bomb using radioactive materials. He got a lot of the details right, and a visit from the FBI. Still, this kind of thing makes you wonder if telepathy time travels backwards. End quote. Other people have mentioned the remarkable similarity. I mean, gee, both the Sidonia Mensa and Kirby's face both have, somewhat in some light, looking like eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Pretty amazing coincidence to some people. In the end, though, this is one case where I can say that it's an interesting coincidence and that the minds of comic book artists and science fiction writers are likely to come up with something that, years later, will be shown to be real. Or will have people claiming that it was shown to be real in a form of retrodiction. This isn't a case where I can say that Jack Kirby absolutely positively was not an alien plant trying to get the word out. But what I can do, and what I have done, is demonstrate that what people point to as the face on Mars, and others like it, are much more consistent with random formations that, under some lighting, are going to look like something recognizable to some people. It should also be emphasized that NASA is one of the most open agencies of the U.S. federal government, and rules for all missions are that images have to be released either six months or one year after they were taken, unlike pretty much any other space agency in the world which has no such rules. Finally, pareidolia is a powerful part of human psychology, and it should not be underestimated when looking at hundreds or thousands of images of other worlds, or even our own. A bit of new news this week related to a previous episode is that Brian Dunning, the guy who does the Skeptoid podcast, seems to be following but a few months or a year or two behind. His December 31st, 2012 episode was The Hollow Earth. As with the Flat Earth Society, he took a bit more of a historic approach than I did, addressing some of the older ideas that in tests to try to determine if Earth was hollow. My approach from episode 8 was to take a look at some of the more modern ideas and to give you several reasons from basic physics of why Earth can't be hollow. Moving on, I'm foregoing Q&A again this week, and I'm admittedly a bit behind in my email for feedback as well. But since there were no corrections to the previous podcast episode that were pointed out yet, I'm going to be delaying discussing feedback until the next or the next next episode. In terms of the puzzler, where each episode, or I attempt each episode to attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. This episode, I'm going to carry over the puzzler from last time, but make it more general. Send in your best or favorite pareidolia example from any space imagery that's out there. I'd say that I'll share them on the next episode, episode 61, to come out on January 16th, but I need to record it early due to travel, so I'll share them on the next next episode to come out on January 24th, episode 62. The January 16th episode will be about whether asteroid impacts as explanations for various weird solar system features is special pleading. So, if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send them in.
That wraps up this topic for the 60th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I do hope that you've enjoyed it and learned a little, or a lot, at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use 1, the feedback form on the website, 2, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, C, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, Delta, leave a comment on the blog post for this episode, 5, leave a comment on the Facebook page for this podcast, or F, send me a tweet, at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback even if I haven't gotten back to you. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Please write a review and share this podcast on your portal of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and several dozen random internet people that you've never met in person.